Welcome back to another episode of Inking of Immunity. I just wanted to pop in and say that this is going to be our last episode of season one, but don't worry, we will be back in your feeds shortly after classes start back in the fall. And in the meantime, make sure you're following us on social media so you can get any updates we post and find out the season two release date when we have that for you guys. So enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Inking of Immunity. Today we're joined by Dr. David C. Lane. David has a PhD in sociology and is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice Sciences at Illinois State University. His research focuses on tattooing, the relationship between disasters and crime, and understanding contemporary social problems. David is the author of a recent book called The Other End of the Needle, Continuity and Change Among Tattoo Workers, which we will be talking about with him today. So, hey, David, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And we're going to get through these uh, technical difficulties for sure. <laughs> we'll I'm get now there. seeing I've got an unstable connection. Can you all actually hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Yep. Yours is probably the most stable for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess uh, I'll start out and uh, I'll just have, see if you can uh, just tell us a little bit about your background and what your journey to this sociological study of tattooing has been like for you. This is actually kind of a long journey to some extent, um, but it starts off really early on in life with experiences being around tattooed people. And I think like many of those that got into tattooing, we tended to see tattooed bodies early on in our lives. And we realized that was kind of a possibility. You know, just like people learn about clothing or hairstyles or hair plugs or whatever they're going to do to their bodies, they've got to learn this stuff from somewhere. So I'm originally from Baltimore, which is like East Coast, very working class town. Um, a lot of industrial factories shut down with the industrialization and whatnot. But in Baltimore, there tended to be a pretty well developed like punk rock scene and a lot of skateboarders and whatnot. And this is in the, the like early to mid nineties. So here I was as a young teen hanging out in like the punk rock scene and going skating. And in those scenes, you tended to see a lot more tattooed bodies and especially like the hardcore punk scene, you saw like a lot of heavily tattooed bodies. So here I am as like a young teen being like, whoa, you could do that. And that looks pretty cool. Um, and I like, it wasn't about the meanings of tattoos or anything like that so much as, wow, that looked neat. I didn't know that was a possibility. So there's that experience early on in my life. And so I, I guess I gained an appreciation and an affinity for it, but tied to that, it's also kind of my life related to tattooing in the sense that friends I had became tattooers or like one of my good friends, older brothers owned his own shop for a while. And so it was always something that I was on the periphery of or I had access to in the sense that it was one person away. Uh, so there's that kind of experience of just my own social life. But then there's the whole intellectual journey. And that is a different story. I, I went to undergraduate on the Eastern shore of Maryland. There I, I did some probably lackluster presentations on tattooing, you know, undergraduate kind of stuff. I forgive my professors for tolerating it. Uh, <laughs> But I, I at least had some passion. Uh, then I decided to take a year off school and just kind of 
do some odd jobs. I was working in kitchens and doing construction and roofing and things like that, just kind of finding myself. I didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I had a, in a home evasion armed robbery. And not that that was like this major, major turning point, but it was kind of this thing that flipped the light switch off. Like, you got to get it together. And I was like, I, I figured at that point, I could definitely do grad school. And I was, I was getting to a point where I was kind of missing that intellectual environment in my life. So I, I decided to start applying and I really wanted to, to have an emphasis on crime and deviance. I guess it deals with those experiences of victimization. You kind of want to understand this realm of criminality. So I applied to grad school with that intent. Um, ended up doing a master's thesis on art theft, which I, I'm into art and culture. It's kind of unrelated to tattooing, but there's this art aspect that, that there is a common tie. During that whole process, I had always collected like academic articles on tattooing and not every single one. I wasn't doing a study or anything like that. It was more my own curiosity. And I was also thinking that at some point I'm going to end up in a position in the academy. Maybe I'll end up being able to teach a course and use that subject matter to trick undergraduates into learning theory. Um, you know, it was a naive assumption that undergraduates actually pay attention to us. Uh, <laughs> but I figured, it, you know, it might be a sexy topic at some point. So I did that. And then I ended up getting into graduate school got very serious about collective behavior and social movements. And I was planning on doing this dissertation on political violence and a very serious dissertation about states and the relationship to violence. And they kept saying, you're really into tattooing. You should do something about tattooing. And of course I was like, no, 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 I'm not. Finally, they got it into my head and I accepted it. So then I just started reading everything I could on it. And that's really how I got to where I am with the sociological study of this. That's such an interesting path, yeah. So um, something that I'm particularly interested in is like perceptions of tattooing um, and well, because I'm a psychologist, how people are perceived when they have tattoos and things like that. And something that I've noticed is um, there's a lot of perceptions around tattooing and deviancy and criminality. And so I wondered what your perspective is on that and, and how come it's, it's kind of no longer seen as something that's pro-social or, or anything. Yeah, there, this is one of those questions that there's like a lot to unpack. Yeah, um, there is. And there's probably like, this could be its own podcast yeah. of, of a discussion. So it really is a, a pretty elaborate thing to get into. Maybe since we're talking about psychology, one of the early figures, especially in, in sort of Western science, Lombroso and his early criminal yes. anthropology. And in a lot of that, he was blaming tattooing as a sign of being a criminal in this sort of biological throwback and obviously it was this primitive ethno-racial theorizing so in a sense it, it got tattooing got tied to criminality but we've got to keep in mind when Lombroso was writing like there are a couple articles one that was in Appleton's scientifically scientific monthly in which in the first or second paragraph he notes that at the exact same time period he's trying to link tattooing to criminality there's a fad of tattooing amongst aristocratic British women uh, and, and in fact there was a, a, a high-end tattoo shop on German Street in London, which is like the high-end fashion district. So while Ambroso's making these claims, he's obviously ignoring some of the data that exists out there. So that's part of it. But in thinking about this question, it's kind of funny because the other day I was scrolling through some old files of mine and I found a New York Times little blurb and it was a piece published in 1971. And it was warning women of getting tattoos because they said, and I quote, we think it's the height of bad taste. 
And this little blurb was in response to a New York Times piece that was saying tattooing was now tasteful for young women. Uh, so it was Tiffany and company basically making the claim that uh, young women shouldn't be tattooed. Uh, but it just struck me as odd that, that I found that the other day. Anyhow, the core of this, tattooing is relative. And when I was thinking about this question, it really brings me back to key figures in the field of deviance, in particular, Howie Becker. I don't know if his work translates to anthropology that much. The, the idea that deviance itself is relative and it depends on who's making up which rules, uh, how those rules get enforced to different groups of people. And if we look back cross-culturally throughout history, there are certainly societies in which tattooing was reserved solely for marking outsiders, for marking deviants, others in which it was pro-social or even marking those that were aristocratic or that had high status. I think of you know, high status Egypt and some of the, the bodies that we've recovered from ancient Egypt, often that was exclusively reserved for purposes of fertility or for priestesses. Um, so there's a very spiritual connection to tattooing in that kind of a society versus others. So I'm curious about uh, the question that, that I have on the surface is, why do you think there's a recent surge in popularity of tattooing? But I think we could all probably answer that question. So I'd rather ask you, based on your expertise and talking about the sociology of people like Howard Becker and subcultures, how you think the role of subculture with mainstream culture have interacted to make one be portrayed as deviant, even though we all keep embracing it and getting our arms completely tattooed up versus, you know, this, this idea that it's mainstreaming right now. How do we rectify those sort of two competing models? Yeah, there's a great article about cultural consumption and tattoos, and I, I'm trying to remember who it was from, but the title was something like Not Just for Bikers Anymore, and it was, um, she was at a university in Pennsylvania. She's at Pennsylvania? Yeah, she was the sociologist who got arrested a few years ago on the airport, on the airplane for smoking and making it about Cesar Chavez. Missed that completely. <laughs> and I, I, like, I know all these details about her. I just can't remember who, who she is. Oh, that sounds like me every time I teach. <laughs> I tell stories and I can't remember the name of the person whose story it is. Anyhow, the question you're asking, and, and she pitches it kind of in the lines of the way social class has transitioned over time. Uh, and part of it deals with middle-class men searching for a kind of masculinity that they've lost, so that tattooing is a way to reclaim some of that uh, masculinity that's presumed to be dying or fading out in, in middle-class ranks. But also with popularity, I mean, there are other factors at play, and I'm, I'm sure through some of the, the book you notice that I'm concerned with public reaction to tattooers uh -huh. and how the public reaction creates a sort of way to rank or to interpret or to understand different tattooists in relation to one another. And even tattooists do this. So it becomes a part of people's identities and sorting through this world. But when we think of culture and consumption in general, we're living in a time period in which many of us have access to more culture than we've ever had access to than before. So we can pull from a lot of sources. But if we look at all those sources in the totality that we have access to, I'm pretty sure many of us go shopping at the same kinds of places. That is, whether I'm here in Illinois or I'm down by you all, I can find a Target and a Walmart and a Taco Bell and whatever else, and I can consume the same kinds of cultural goods. And to some extent, there's this, I don't know if it's a displacement, but we're all consuming the same stuff. We don't get to carve out identities that we feel resonate with us that are specific to time and place. 
And tattooing, I think, is kind of a way in which we get to still carve out those identities because we get to make something our own and it's a good that we're consuming that nobody else really has. I mean, unless you're one of those people copying things off Pinterest. Um, but, but aside from that, I mean, we do get to at least what claim you something. About? <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know how many tattooers you all talk to, but I, I go in shops all the time and like they roll their eyes and they're frustrated at this problem of somebody coming in Ooh. with the same Pinterest image as the person before them and before them and before them. And they're just like, I don't want to do it anymore. This yeah, definitely. I, I see that as well. And in, in they're like, I don't want to just copy somebody else's picture. I want to do something of mine that I've created. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, tattooers, when we talk about doing something that's theirs, they're really constrained. They're not free to just do whatever they want because they also have to do what clients demand of them. Mm-hmm. And clients might not have the resources to do what they want and things like that. So tattooers, they might have these ambitions of like, ah, oh, I want to do this awesome, you know, Japanese, whatever, but they can't because their clientele don't have the funds to sit there and do that. Um, I have to, to I'm going to uh, mute myself so I can, I can um, hear y'all, but I just wanted to, before I go talk to this grad student, it makes me think of, since you're from Baltimore, I'm preoccupied with this. I'm, I, and, Baltimore at one point had a seedy nature. It was associated with John Waters. And then as John Waters in some ways became super popular, right? Like there's John Waters of Pink Flamingos and the Egg Lady, which if you haven't seen those movies, I'm talking to listeners or or any of you, like they're incredibly edgy and fucked up. But then he became this sort of like iconic mainstream representation of counterculture and i see a similar sort of ambiguity with tattooing right where you have it you could literally get tattooing uh 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 don hardy ed roth type of t-shirts at target and yet go to a tattoo artist and ask for something that is very very specific and idiosyncratic and 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 sort of do both sides of the fence. And I do get stuff off of Pinterest and shop at Target. So I'm gonna shut up about those right now. I mean, I shop at Target too. You can't avoid some of these places to buy goods as much as we wanna try. We're talking about like some of the themes of resistance to capitalism and whatnot. You can't, Uh, you simply can't survive by doing that. And if, if I tried to survive not purchasing goods that way, I don't know if I'd have enough money to live. It, it really, it becomes this challenge of, the world we we ideally want to have we can't necessarily consume it that's so true or the or the time to put in to to be able to do something like grow your own food i mean yeah um i think i might have found who who the author was that you were looking for karen halnan yes halnan yes yes that's the um one. yeah and her her thing about muscles it was like motorcycles muscles and tattoos or something like that it was a really interesting piece about middle-class men reclaiming something but those aren't the only reasons we have this spread of popularity recently um i mean there were obviously key pop culture events if we think back to the 1970s especially in the u.s context i mean Cher was tattooed peter fonda ozzy osbourne and we can go on the list of pop culture figures that were visibly tattooed uh, Janis Joplin, who I note in the book, I, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the um, tattooer um, Lyle Tuttle, uh, once noted that Janis Joplin, and he quoted her as saying, she was on stage saying that tattooed people like to fuck a lot. Uh, and she had a, a tattoo around her wrist. So like, 
it, it that kind of puts it in uh, a realm in which it's more accessible. By the really 1990s, if we look at forms of pop culture, things like professional sports, you could probably look at basketball teams in the NBA by year and start seeing by the mid-1990s, you see more tattooed bodies. And now if we were to look at a team photo, you'd probably the outlier will be the non-tattooed body. Uh, so in a sense, we've got more access to it than we've ever had before. And of course, there's also sort of mass media changes that have helped facilitate tattooing coming to us. Things like television shows, which I, I note in the book, by the mid-2000s, there was a sort of explosion in all things tattooing. And there were these reality shows that were so unrealistic about tattooing, but they brought it into people's living rooms. And somebody could sit down in their basement and watch the show and go, I'm into that, and realize that's a possibility for them. The other thing, and we're talking about Pinterest, the internet. In the early 2000s, I, I don't think many tattooers were advertising their services online. But now, you know, they have to have websites, they have to have Facebooks, and there's this huge transition we've seen in how to create a marketable commercial art form. Uh, and if somebody doesn't have that presence, they're really going to struggle. So, and we've, we talked about this earlier, what, it, what is it, what do you think it is that has caused this academic focus to be kind of solely on the tattoo that the mark itself and, and the people wearing the tattoo and, and what does that miss out on? Yeah, this is a good question and there's a lot to it. Um, as, as, it seems a lot more simple on the surface than it really is, but there's actually a lot to it. Uh, and on the one hand, I, I think back to how I got into this. Um, when I started studying tattooing, I was trying to read everything I could on it. And in sociology in particular, one of the early works is Clinton Sanders' Customizing the Body. And that one focused on tattooers. But in thinking about it, all these articles afterwards and all the books afterwards in sociology and even anthropology to some degree focused on tattoos themselves or the consumers. And I, I wondered if this question is one of those things that really merits a, a deeper conversation about epistemology and how we produce scientific knowledge in the sense that what were the decisions of those people that came along later? Were they seeking particular subjects or areas that didn't tread on the territory that Sanders had already been on? Um, were they seeking particular theoretical or conceptual questions that could be answered easier by studying tattoos themselves? Was it an issue of access to the object of study? Something like it's easier to talk to people who are tattooed than see the tattoo process. So I think there's a really important epistemological conversation embedded in this kind of a question. Um, I hope that makes sense as a statement so far. Definitely. Yeah. Really um, and, and for me, it was, it, you know, what struck, what stuck out to me, and I had been reading everything I could on tattooing coming into this research, and I woke up one day and I had this thought in my head that I was really sick of hearing about what people's tattoos mean. And it's not that I didn't care about tattooing, I just, yeah, you have your own meanings, I don't really, it's not my interest. And it was kind of this moment, I, I'm making it seem more grandiose than it is, but I, I got out of bed and I started stacking things of, it talks about tattoos, it doesn't talk about tattoos and their meanings. And my stack of things that didn't talk about tattoos and their meanings was really small, and the ones about what tattoos meant to people was really big. And that sort of told me that maybe there's something over here. Uh, and, and that led me to this realization that tattooing is a kind of process, we often are talking about this outcome, 
but the outcome is dependent upon all these other things that happen prior to it. Tattooers make decisions. They're embedded in networks of production. They have to get socialized to a job. They have to learn a culture where there's a stratification system. Um, they have to learn how to find the tools. And those tools aren't necessarily on the shelves every place. I mean, I guess we could go on walmart.com and buy a cheap tattoo kit right now uh, for 20 bucks or something like that. But the high quality machines that tattooers are using in shops, often they're produced by hand and you have to know tattooers who are making those things. And there's, it's not necessarily a background check so much as, yeah, you know, so-and-so works at the shop, they're cool, you know, talk to them. Um, so you have to find these networks and get embedded in them. And a lot goes on behind the scenes that most of us don't see with tattooing. Um, so I think in, in transitioning the question to the process, we're now thinking about uh, the interaction between the consumer as well as the creator, but all the things that the creator needed to do prior to making that tattoo. And I have to say is Howard Becker's book, Art Worlds, was really influential to me. I'm sure you picked up on that as a kind of theme throughout what I was doing. Um, and Becker argues that artists, yes, they get the honorific title and the credit for things that they produce. But when we look at the production of any artwork, there are many different people involved in doing it. Uh, we can look at films. Often the, the directors and, and the actors or actresses, they get the credit versus the person that, that held the camera or the person that made the music. And um, if we think about tattooing, while we like to imagine it as this isolated world where this tattooist is working alone, again, they've got to find machines. They've got to find mentors. They've got to find source material. Uh, that somebody somewhere is making pigments that they're selling and they might not even be selling this online to people. So you've got to know where to find all this kind of stuff. Um, moreover, you've got to rely on like medical professionals because some of the technology in tattoo shops comes from the medical realm. Uh, so they've got all these connections and these networks that matter for just producing a single tattoo. Um, and then of course they need feedback and evaluation to improve their craft. Um, when they're talking about materials, they've got to sort through materials that are useful or materials that um, might not have the qualities that they desire. You think about the search for good pigments. Um, there are certain pigments that tattooers use that, that are, are junk and others that are really high quality things. And it might be decades for tattooers finding the kinds of pigments that they like to produce the desired effects that they want. And they're dependent upon all sorts of other producers to make those pigments. All right, guys, last note here. We had a little bit of a technical difficulty and lost some of the audio. Just a question and a small bit of discussion, but we're going to jump right back in talking about the meaning that people ascribe to their tattoos versus people who are heavily tattooed but don't necessarily ascribe meaning to their tattoos. All right. Interesting question that has yet to really be asked, right? What tattoo wearers have tattoos? where the meaning is quite significant to their lives and it's central to their identity versus others that have tattoos and they're just fun or they look cool. And it's a very different set of meanings than say um, something to memorialize my dead grandmother. Yeah, It's absolutely. very personal and, and wearing it on the surface of the skin or, or something to memorialize like a traumatic event. Um, that's a yeah. very different tattoo uh, qualitatively and, and uh, it wrapped in somebody's identity than just, well, I thought this was cool. 
Yeah, exactly. In terms of like the, the process of planning it and things, you know, you see people who have like these full body suits that are, that are so meticulously planned or um, these specific pieces like a memorial or a reclamation piece and things. Whereas for me, it's just like, you know, oh, I really love that design and it was available. Or I really love that person's work. Can you do with something that fits here? And it doesn't have any meaning at all, but it's just something that I like and it doesn't match or anything. It's, there's no significance. And then people come up to you in the street and the good what does this mean and you're like i don't know nothing <laughs> and there's there's also like like an age component to this too um and maybe it's not just age but it, it's the consumer being socialized into tattooing um i i'm sure you're you look pretty heavily tattooed but uh the decisions i make now with the tattoos i want to consume are far different than i would have made 20 years ago yeah. um and i i i remember when I was getting into tattooing, a tattooer telling me that somebody was lucky that they waited so long to get heavily tattooed mm -hmm. and they were a tattooer. And it wasn't that they were collecting tattoos, but it dealt with them learning about tattoo aesthetics and what looked right on their own bodies, who to consume from and sort of create these more elaborate designs versus just consuming very early on, but not knowing much about the process itself. Um, and so maybe there's a gap here that, that needs to be filled and it deals with informing consumers because tattooers can't produce better works unless consumers challenge them to do better things. And if consumers coming in wanting the same bland design that a bunch of other people have on Pinterest, um, the tattooers aren't gonna excel in another direction. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry, I felt like that became a rant all of a sudden. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's totally my fault. I just took it off direction, just thinking, like, I totally get this. <laughs> just, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it was what you're saying resonated. Like, I, I, I've realized that, and then I'm thinking about these experiences, and it's totally different. Like, my consumption now is, I'm, I'm thinking, like, only giant things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's because I've been socialized to see different kinds of aesthetics versus early on. It was like, well, I can do that whole like calf piece. Um, but then I've got this sort of bricolage place together thing. Yeah, I feel the same. That I feel like I've learned so much through my journey from starting young that I'm so pleased I wasn't heavily tattooed when I was young because so many of the, I wouldn't say there were mistakes, but it's something that you're learning through the process of of, of learning about the tattoo industry, learning about, um, as you say, different different artists having different strengths, different pigments, and, and some, some of them are really junk and some of them are really cool. And so you're going through that whole process yourself of learning and you're learning on your own body as well. Yeah, I would. I'm, I'm pleased I wasn't heavily tattooed when I was younger. <laughs> are, are you at that stage of covering things up now? Oh, that's yeah. Where this, I'm at. Yeah, this was all, this was, God, I think it's had been covered up three times and then lasered off. And then that's another cover up. And I've got, I've got all these lasers and yeah, <laughs> redoing yeah, it covering all. Covering up stuff across my back and everything. It's just like I had this huge shoulder piece and it's like, wait, no, I want to do like a full back thing. Exactly. Um, and, I, and so, I had my kids' names tattooed on then. I got them all covered <laughs> up and my daughter was like, what the hell? How could you do that? And I was like, yes, I will cover them up. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's like your kids, that's got to have significant meaning. Or you're talking exactly. about tattoos being for fun with their kids. Like, exactly. the kids and I was like, look, are they still there? You can still see them when the light hits them, right? 
so oh sorry i'm computer going off so talking about tattooing as an art form and a craft you've you've talked about um about tattooing being a craft and as an art form um what what is the difference between those things I don't know if it's completely easy to isolate the difference between them, but I can sort of describe examples from tattooing. And yes. I'll, I'll probably couch this in, in the, the, the theoretical framework that guided some of this research. Again, Becker's Art Worlds. And in Art Worlds, he argues that they consist of, of craft, commercial art, institutional art, and other forms of art. Um, so even the highest arts, fine arts, consist of some degree of craft. And, we can think of say a, a painter in a studio or somebody doing installation art. There is a craft to that kind of work, uh, whether it's stretching the canvas for a painting because they like them stretched a certain way or the craft of climbing up on ladders and hanging things and making that installation piece look right. So there's obviously craft to it. If we think about the tattoo process, uh, some of this we, we kind of mentioned, it's like finding the right pigments or finding inks that work certain ways. Uh, if we're talking about the craft of it, even the, the best artist is going to contend with things like skin. And we, we have to forget about that as a variable, but skin changes. Younger skin is easier to tattoo than older skin. Uh, skin that's been tanned a lot is harder to tattoo. If skin's wrinkly, if it doesn't stretch out, the pigment of the skin, and all of these are going to affect the outcome or, or the ways that pigment is put into the skin and how it appears as an image later on. So there's certainly a craft to doing that. Moreover, and, and we've already touched on this, many tattooists prefer things like coil machines. Um, I, I know that the rotaries are becoming popular, but coil machines, there's an entire craft to making them work and operate. Uh, knowing how the, the, the number of wraps around the coil matter for throw or the thickness and the gauge of the spring for affecting throw or the number of needle points and what gauge spring you need in relation to that. And maybe I'll, I'll stop here for, for listeners. Um, not all tattoo needles are equal, and they actually consist of a bundle of needles, um, of very blunt needles actually, that push the pigment into the skin. And um, some might have uh, dozens of needle points, maybe 40 or 50, and others might have as few as one or three needle points on them. Um, and whether they're round or flat, like paintbrushes being round or flat affects the outcome. So even in like the highest end artisan of tattooing, some degree is dependent upon knowing, manipulating those physical aspects of the craft. So there's certainly a high degree of craftsmanship in anything that's going to be considered high art tattoo. Likewise, even craft tattooing, and in the United States, we tend to think of this as like traditional American tattooing or something like that, things where we're replicating flash designs and whatnot. There's going to be art in it. Um, I, I think back to somebody, let's say, that's consuming machines, and maybe they're consuming a machine built by somebody that's like a one-off machine where they ran a series of like 20 or 50 of those frames and then built those machines individually, tried them out on people, and sent them away to whoever purchased them. And for, for listeners that don't know about this, there's a whole world of machine builders within tattooing, and these are people who specialize in making machines for specific tasks, whether it's running like long, big lines or um, shading and running really fast. Um, these things matter for, for the outcome of it. Um, and maybe they've engraved that machine or something like that with a personal design on it. So there's a kind of art to it in that sense. There's also an art to it in that many of the aesthetics that are within conventional tattooing, and we can look back at old flash and whatnot, 
and we've already talked about Ed Hardy a little bit here, uh, but his mentor was, was Phil Sparrow and Samuel Stewart. Um, but Samuel Stewart studied under um, uh, Amon Dietzel. And Amon Dietzel actually took art classes. He was, he was a sign painter, but he also took art classes. Even Stoney St. Clair, who's like this old carny tattooer in the US, at one point was taking art classes. So to some degree, the aesthetics that we view as part of the craft of tattooing uh, are also reliant upon the institutional art world and information from them. And I've got somewhere in the book, I'm, I'm interviewing somebody, I think it's uh, a person that got the name of Dorsey. These are all pseudonyms, but he's talking about this of one third, one third, one third, and that you should have one third color, one third shading and one third skin for a tattoo image to display depth and the appropriate stuff. But that's really something borrowed from the institutional art realm. So even in his craft of designing a tattoo, he's thinking about kinds of artistic rules to make images appear right, whether it's depth and shading and color uh, on skins and bodies and whatnot. So that probably makes this a little bit more complex than I thought, but at the end of the day, the big question, right? These are all social arrangements that people create and they're relative to how we define our worlds. I'm sure you, you got this theme through it that um, the world of tattooing, it exists in the sense that people make up meanings, the meanings they find useful, they keep around, and then they socialize new members to learn these meanings. Um, so to some degree, what some might consider art or, or, or craft might be different in among groups of, of tattooers, right? It's not fixed, it's not absolute either. Yeah, it brings a whole new meaning to the term arts and crafts, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, yeah, we, we, like, we like the complex and I think it, it's good for our listeners and anybody else who wants to learn about these social relations, it's always more, it's always more complex than it seems on the surface. Yeah, um, there are all these overlaps, right? Where the boundaries, it's not like the boundaries of these worlds are isolated. There's people that span them and go between them. And I, like, I can't tell you how many tattooers I interviewed and I, it's somewhere in the book that either went to a university and had formal art training or completed degrees and then realized that Adobe took all their jobs and tattooing was the way to, to make money off of art. Uh, but yeah, that was sarcasm that Adobe took their jobs. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, but, but at some point they realized they want to do art, they've got to make money. And here's a viable alternative to say, becoming a public school teacher where you know, you're going to be underpaid consistently and deal with all sorts of problems of working in a public school. That's so true. And you mentioned right there, you mentioned making money and making a living. Um, and you talk about this in the book a little bit, uh, how, how tattooists and the profession of tattooing has been able to, to survive and change within this capitalist economy. Um, but at the same time, it, it's maintained some form of autonomy and even at times kind of pushing back and, and resisting against that system. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll start with a sort of blanket caveat statement about social change to, to begin with it we have to remember and and it's easy to forget this because we're living in this situation that things like capitalism and democratic nation states are very new as ways of organizing social life the french revolution is still pretty recent if we think about human history capitalism as a way of exchanging goods is still pretty recent when we talk about the sort of wider human histories so these are arrangements we're still figuring out and tattooing, especially in the United States, has an interesting path because it's not necessarily a, a job 
it's really people tinkering and having fun with some materials they have available, sailors and whatnot. You mentioned Matt Lauder earlier. I think he's done a lot of work documenting this history among sailors. It's actually pretty excellent. Um, but this research project I did, it began with a really simple question. Uh, how do tattooists survive? And then it began exploring how do people make a living off of this? And through it, I, I didn't initially intend to explore the dimensions of capitalism, and this is the kind of resistance to it. My question was just simply, how do people of an occupation make a living? How do they organize their daily rounds? How do they conceive of identities? How do they learn this job? But it became apparent through the data that there was this other theme in which there was a kind of tension between the job itself, its historical evolution, and capitalism as this overarching force that structures people's lives. Um, so in that sense, we, we can't forget the newness of capitalism, but uh, what struck out as interesting to me is that tattooers have developed this kind of cultural code and it's, I don't wanna say it's omnipresent, but generally people have access to it. And it's a set of values and beliefs around how they should orient themselves to their work. And it's something I call the old school ethic. Um, and when they're socialized into the occupation, generally they learn that there's a kind of traditional established way of doing things. And this doesn't mean that the occupation doesn't change, but when they're confronted with problems and issues of change, they often think about looking toward the past to resolve those problems rather than looking toward the future. And it's thinking back to the venerated masters and how would they have solved this problem? So there's that aspect that, that tradition matters, but there are also aspects that are relevant to how people become tattooers and how they survive. Things in capitalism that, that matter. We worry about time and money and units of analysis when we're measuring somebody's value or worth. And now that we're in the sort of neoliberal era, don't we tend to tie somebody's worth to their monetary or material uh, position in society? Uh, tattooists to some degree have eschewed that system. And uh, there's part of this that, that's collinear with it. Um, we also in, in these systems tend to value credentialism and formal education over other methods of learning about the world. And we're all part of universities, so we know this. We see students every semester that they think their grades matter for the jobs they're going to have. And if, if they don't get a certain grade, their life chances have disappeared all of a sudden. Um, tattooing in this world doesn't operate on that at all. It operates on a, a kind of ethic of honor, of, of status, things that generally aren't associated with that kind of formal education and credentialism we tend to see in other institutions. Moreover, tattooing has survived as an occupation in which people make money. And unlike other occupations and professions, they don't really have like formal professional associations. Like there are a couple, but they're so weak that if you get into trouble as a tattooer, it's not like they're going to help you. Right? You're still stuck on your own. And, and there were a couple that were more about selling goods and actually being like a professional association, National Tattoo Association in the United States. And I guess they're international. Uh, they were more about selling tattoo supplies to people than being a professional association in the sense that if you were a member, you got a discount to buy things. And that was about all they really did. Um, there's another one that, that actually emerged out of Maryland, 
associational professional piercers and professional tattooers. Um, they're mostly concerned about keeping the authorities away from tattooing, making sure people are trained in bloodborne pathogens and things like that. Uh, but again, this is an independent ethic and tattooers are doing this in the absence of the state. And I'm, I'm sure you saw there's a large portion of the book dedicated to, to the law, as well as how people try to avoid the law becoming involved in what they do. So this is, it's really operated in a way that it hasn't been tied to our formal institutions for a number of years. And somehow tattooists have made this work out in many other occupations, there'd be such conflict and struggles over power. And yet we don't see those same battles falling in tattooing. So maybe we can learn something from this that we can bring to other occupations and professions about how to organize ourselves. So talking about, um, you know, not everyone being as privileged to get the kind of access to tattooists in their social worlds that you did. So you, you, you got some really good access when you were doing your interviews. Um, what, what's difficult to create? Um, was it difficult to create the trust that was necessary for you to be able to do that and to be able to kind of have those interactions? Um, and, and what was it about that process that you enjoyed? It was surprisingly a lot easier than I thought. <laughs> like much easier than I thought. Um, maybe I'm a likable person. I generally don't think I'm that likable. Uh, but I, I, I went to people and I really approached them just honestly, like I'm working on this project. I actually collected a national census of tattoo shops. I do this every other summer. Um, so I actually have a list of every tattoo shop by address in the US. Uh, and I, I selected from this list the, the shops to participate. And I, I looked at sort of demographic variables of where they were located. So I've got this ecological component. And I just went in and honestly said, this is what I'm working on. Um, I did a, a sample of this, your shop was selected. Could I participate? But there's a kind of caveat to this that matters. I'm very lucky in that I was tattooed by somebody who, while he's on the eastern shore of Maryland, is very well respected in Baltimore in the tattoo scene. Um, he's done guest spots at, at pretty prominent shops and people generally like him. So often going into shops, and if you've hung around shops long enough, people can come in and tattooers that are pretty skilled can go, is that so-and-so's work? And that was often a very early question. And I think that gave me a degree of credibility and legitimacy that wasn't always there. Yeah. Um, there's also just the life history of being from that city that matters in the sense that there were people I came across that we could pinpoint. We had been in the same times and places before, but we had never met. Like we had seen a band play that came through two years ago, but we were both at the show. We could tell you where we were at the show, but we had just never crossed paths and interacted. And we were often one degree away from each other. Like we knew this person and this person in common. So there was a sort of way to relate to each other from that. Um, yeah, that happened quite a few times, actually, that there were there was just one person away, not just people who I've been getting tattooed by, but others that I knew from skateboarding or punk rock or something like that, that, that we, we had this common friend and somehow we had never met. Um, in fact, one of the people I, I open up the book with this person, Kevin, uh, it turns out we knew a ton of people in common. We were in the same places. Um, one of us, I can't remember if it was me or him, at some point showed the other a photograph from a band playing. And one of us goes, I'm literally right over there because those are my two friends. So like we knew we were in the same places. We just had never met. And it was just, it's kind of surreal in that sense. Um, but there's another aspect to, to this and that 
a lot of tattooers were really open to me doing this. I think that they're working in an occupation in which they need a, a degree of legitimacy, uh, credibility in the public. And having a researcher hang around is probably good for business because it legitimates their work within conventional institutions and they're used to so often defending their labor. And, and I guess one of the teams from Baltimore, right? It, there were places where it was banned for a certain period of time or that people had rumors going where you couldn't open up shops. Uh, for them, this really helps get out a message to uh, different audiences that their work is legitimate and it is valued. So I, I think a lot of them saw that. Um, there were others that, that really got to express how they felt about tattooing in which they wouldn't have had those opportunities. I think to the, the shops I hung out in, they were in like um, all black neighborhoods in Baltimore that from historic marginalization, redlining, segregation practices, um, they virtually don't have people talking about their stories. Um, so in a sense, that was an opportunity for them to talk about uh, seeing this world really as, as an outsider and a racial outsider to tattooing. But yeah, I'm lucky. They let me in. All these people let me in. And it's, it's amazing that, that I just was honest and said, I'm working on this. And they were like, yeah, come hang out. That's awesome. That's so great. Yeah, talking about just overlapping worlds, right? <laughs> well, I know that we could, I mean, we could talk to you all day, Dave, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll wrap this up for now. Um, but hopefully we'll get you back sometime soon and, and talk some more about all this. Um, do you want to just quickly tell us maybe what you're, what you're working on currently or what's on the horizon for you? I have a bunch on the horizon. <laughs> I'm currently involved in a project. Unfortunately, it's it's taken a, a backseat to COVID because it involves interviewing. But uh, you can actually find information out about it at tattoostudyisu.com. I'm currently interviewing people who have tattoos in relation to traumatic events in their lives. Uh, and tattooing is part of the sort of recovery and, and reclamation of ownership over somebody's body. Uh, that's a pretty amazing project. And unfortunately, COVID's kind of cramping it right now, but if you're interested, please check that out. I've got another project where I'm working on the relationship between fraud and natural hazards and disasters, and sort of an emerging area in both crime and disasters about how crime occurs in relation to impact and whatnot. Um, so that's its own thing. I've also got a, another project where I'm examining, and actually this is, I'm writing this up right now, examining how authorities and whatnot are constructed in news media when they're responding to disaster events and trying to construct legitimacy of, of who's the appropriate authority responding and whatnot. Uh, another project involved with tattooists and advertising their services. And that's a, a whole project about um, how people try to construct the art as a kind of commercial art form, um, but also find and locate consumers and whatnot. And then I've got a final project that's in the works right now uh, I'm analyzing old marijuana propaganda films from the United States to understand the ways in which they've created rhetoric around defining marijuana as deviant. That is wow. an awful lot of stuff you've got going on right now. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I took a new job, so I've got to earn tenure again, so I can't <laughs> slack on that. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, like, like they offered me the job five minutes after I earned tenure somewhere else. So I was like, I got to get, get to it. <laughs> there you go. So uh, how, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if, if, they're, if they're interested and want to maybe get involved or just want to follow you? Oh, they can find my email. 
or should I just give you my email? That sounded really rude. I just like, they can find my email. <laughs> <laughs> they can, they I didn't can realize, like, it. I'm like, I'm trying to be sarcastic. But... Not at all. What was that? <laughs> Everybody knows how to Google these days, but we can uh, we can definitely put your put your email in the in the link. Yeah, if you could, if you could post it, I don't know which email you were given by the publisher. If it was the the ISU one or not, but DC Lane one at isu.com. It's just the number one, not the whole word. Uh, that's how you can easily find me. But I'm at Illinois State and uh, in the Department of Criminal Justice. That sounds great. Well, Dr. David C. Lane, there you have it. Everybody, go check him out. Thanks for, thanks for stopping by and talking with us, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Dave. Well, have a great day. And yeah, we'll be in touch. We'll do this again sometime. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Catch you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Inking of Immunity. You can find us on Twitter at inking underscore immunity and on Instagram at inking.of.immunity. The hosts of the show are Chris Lynn, Becky Owens, and Mike Smetana. The team that makes these episodes possible is Patricia Arnett, Julia Sponholtz, and me, Kira Yancey. Again, this is going to be the last episode for a while, but we will be back in your feeds before you know it. Y'all have a good summer. Bye.